I'm William O'Flaherty from All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast, available at EssentialCSLewis.com. Today I have with me Devin Brown, a professor of English at Asbury University in Kentucky. His previous books include Three All Narnia, dealing with each of the stories that came out in the theaters, the last being Inside the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Today, however, the focus is on a title just being released October 2012 called The Christian World of the Hobbit. Welcome to the show, Devin. Thanks, William. It's good to be on. Well, now, the best place to begin, Devin, is to help those who are not familiar with how closely J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, is connected to C.S. Lewis. So would you mind uh, telling us uh, what the link is? Yeah, the link actually is is the connection between Tolkien and Lewis, their friendship. They were both uh, teaching at Oxford, English professors, and they at different colleges, and they discovered they shared a passion for Icelandic myths, northern myths, and so they began meeting to talk about this. As you would guess, there wasn't a big circle that liked those sort of things. And it wasn't long before Tolkien said, uh, hey, Jack, uh, I've been working on my own mythology. This is something he'd started back in World War I, uh, the, the, the materials that eventually became published as a Silmarillion. Anyway, he showed him some of those materials, and then he began working on The Hobbit as a children's story. And before you knew it, he shared this with Jack. Jack was enthusiastic about it. He, uh, Lewis writes Arthur Greaves, he said, I just read a manuscript. It's exactly the kind of thing we would have liked. Of course, it's the manuscript of The Hobbit. Uh, it wasn't finished when Lewis looked at it. It wasn't even finished when Tolkien sent it to the publisher. Uh, it took him a long time to finish those kind of things. Lewis ended up writing the first review of it. it. It appeared in the Times Literary Supplement about 11 days after the book came out. And so he was a great encourager and a great supporter of Tolkien's writing. Now, obviously, your book is timed to release with the first part of the movie version of The Hobbit coming out in, in December of 2012. Besides this obvious influence, how did you decide to write this book, and what makes you qualified to produce it? Well, let me do the qualified part first. Uh, I mean, anybody who's willing to spend a lot of time and be very judicious and careful with the text is qualified. You don't need a PhD uh, in English. Uh, anybody who spent time with Lewis and Tolkien would realize there's that their writings merit a lot of careful attention. There's a lot of things that can be said about them. So there's the qualified part. The decide to write it is that very few book-length treatments have been given to The Hobbit. As probably most of your readers know, uh, there's quite a few books on The Lord of the Rings, not so many on The Hobbit. Of the ones on The Hobbit, um, not many really look at the faith elements that are present there. So uh, obviously there's a lot to be said about that. Now, well, let's get into the content of your book, The Christian World of the Hobbit, again, is the title. Um, how is your book uh, organized? Well, if you look at sort of my research question as something like, how did Tolkien's faith, and he was a devout Christian, how did Tolkien's faith impact his fiction? Uh, you're going to come up with a list of, you know, a dozen couple ways that you could look at it. And rather than just say, here's number one, here's two, here's three, da 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 down to 12, I kind of group them into a number of areas. First off, I talked about how the Hobbit is an essentially Christian story, or you might say a fundamentally Christian story. Then I look at providence in The Hobbit. Uh, people who've read it will notice that the word luck appears more times than it should, uh, unless he's talking about something else. I talk about purpose in The Hobbit. Um, clearly, there's a purpose to Bilbo's uh, journey that, that goes beyond getting the dwarf's treasure back. And then I look at the moral landscape of The Hobbit. Finally, I kind of 
wrap it all up in something that I call response and legacy. Well, you, you mentioned in the, the first chapter that you start off with explaining that The Hobbit is essentially a Christian story. Can you give us some more details about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked because lots of times when people hear the title of my book, The Christian World, The Hobbit, they're skeptical and, and rightly so. Um, I'll just say this. English folks like me have a tendency to, to take a text and make it say things that it may not necessarily be saying, uh, <laughs> um, to, to, to impose their own agenda on it, their own reading on it, uh, to impose something that's not there, to distort it. So if, if people are skeptical when they hear the Christian world of the Hobbit, well, they should be. Middle Earth is a curiously non-religious place, right? There's no temples, there's no Bibles, there's no priests, there's no church, um, except for two sort of odd spots in the Lord of the Rings. There's no prayers. So when someone says, where are you getting this sort of Christian worldview of it? Uh, that's a very good question. Tolkien said to uh, Clyde Kilby, a uh, famous Tolkien scholar, he said, I'm a Christian. And of course, what I write will be from that essential viewpoint. And that's where I took my essential viewpoint. Um, I, I claim that the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are in their essence, um, at their core Christian works, but but only at their core, not on the surface. Uh, that Christian viewpoint has been absorbed or you could say embedded into the stories. Later, he wrote another correspondent and said, I'm a Christian, which can be deduced from my stories. And deduced is an interesting word again, right? It's something you have to look into the stories to find, but you don't have to look beyond the stories, right? You don't have to look to his letters or other essays. It's in there, but not on the surface. Now, you mentioned about the um, three chapters that you deal with providence, purpose, and the moral landscape in The Hobbit. Pick one of those and give us some of the highlights that you share in your book. Yeah, I think that uh, I'll pick the first one because it's the one that people can't help but find. And I'll skip to perhaps the, the scene upon which the whole book pivots. So picture this. Bilbo is underneath the Misty Mountains with the dwarves. They're escaping from the goblins. Uh, he's on Dory's back, if I'm not mistaken, and all of a sudden there's a goblin attack from the rear. Bilbo gets knocked off. Everybody runs on, thinking he's with them. In fact, he's not. He comes to, he's knocked unconscious, and it's pitch black. He's underneath the Misty Mountains, miles and miles of tunnels. He's a tiny guy. He's got a little tiny hand. He puts down his hand, and he grabs the ring. Uh, I can't imagine anyone doesn't know what happens next, right? Well, if you were teaching creative writing class, and this was the pivotal scene, not just for The Hobbit, but for The Lord of the Rings, everything depends on Bilbo finding that ring. Well, if it's all based on luck, on coincidence, well, that's a pretty bad story, right? He puts his hand down on the exact right spot in the exact right tunnel and the exact right thing in the dark to find this ring. Later, of course, we discover, as Gandalf tells Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring, Bilbo was meant to find the ring, but not by its maker. So if you take that line, and then if you take the final line of The Hobbits, uh, where Gandalf says, you don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escape were managed by mere luck? Well, mm -hmm. well if these things aren't the result of mere luck, they're the result of something that may have seemed like luck at the time, but was really something far greater. And so I take those lines and other indications like that and talk about uh, the, the role of providence in the story. And if you look at it, uh, I claim that it looks pretty much like the role of a Christian God working in our lives, um, an invisible hand that works in mysterious ways, in ways that we can better see and better understand perhaps later in life. 
things that seemed like luck. And of course, Tolkien's fiction is full of statements like so-called luck or what others might call luck, but hints that it's something greater. That's uh, very interesting, and I wish we had time to go in some of the other things that you talk about in the other chapters. But one of the nice things we do want to let our listeners know, Devin, is that you have agreed to do a short series of podcasts dealing with this very book. It's actually just divided into five chapters, so we're going to do five podcasts uh, in the near future. The goal will be to have this to come out all five just before the actual movie, so people will be all pumped and primed to enjoy the movie and and your book to help them with that. So we do look forward to uh, to that. But now, you you already mentioned that there are other books, although maybe not as many about The Hobbit as with The Lord of the Rings, uh, and there's actually some others coming out. While you obviously haven't read the ones to be coming out, you've mentioned the other ones. Um, Why would our listeners, uh, or how would our listeners find your approach different or better? Why would they want to choose yours? Yeah, I don't know if it's better. Um, I guess it depends on what people are looking for. I mean, I would start off by saying, uh, obviously, my book is a book about a book. And uh, there are people that like such things and people who don't like books about a book or, or books about movies. I, I, I love that sort of stuff, right? In other words, that that's to me is, is part of the enjoyment, uh, learning more about it. Um, so I will say this. A lot of other books about Tolkien, about Lord of the Rings, about The Hobbit have ignored the faith elements. And, and I, I wonder about that. I mean, Tolkien's faith was a huge part of his life. He might even say the central part of his life. And it permeates his writings. And for someone to, to write about his literature and sort of ignore that seems to me like they're missing something. I'll go a different direction. The other mistake I think that an author could make would be to find so-called Christian elements everywhere. And Tolkien himself, you know, didn't like allegory. And he went on to say, look... Uh, you know, the, the, the ring is not the atomic bomb and, and Sauron was not Hitler. I think he would also say the ring is not original sin. Smog is not Lucifer. Gollum is not Judas Iscariot. So that kind of overreading, finding so-called Christian elements everywhere is also a wrong turning. I would hope that readers who, who read my book will think that I've made judicious use of the material. The other thing that I try to do is is keep Tolkien either his writings, his letters, his essays, try to keep him center stage. Uh, Another mistake authors can make is to put themselves center stage. I I try to keep Tolkien right in the middle. Well, speaking of books, we mentioned earlier that you've done three books related to C.S. Lewis. Take a few moments and describe how your general approach was uh, to them and what they are about. Yeah, my three books, Inside Narnia, which looks at the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, Inside Prince Caspian, and Inside the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, really all began in my teaching. I teach a class on C.S. Lewis at Asbury, and as you'd guess, every so often I'll go talk somewhere, and people will hear I teach a class on Lewis, and they'll say, oh, I wish I could take a class on Lewis. I'd love to take a class on C.S. Lewis. And so what I cover in my books is really sort of an in-depth look at what I would do, you know, in my classes. And the nice thing about both Lewis and Tolkien is you can talk about the material itself, and the material itself, as I mentioned earlier, repays close reading. Some books do, some don't. Theirs certainly does. Uh, and then there's all sorts of other materials that I think shine interesting lights on the primary works. Letters from both of the authors, um, autobiographical events, other writings that you can sort of uh, also turn to, to to expand on some of the themes. So so this idea of, of looking closely at the work first looking at the author's other works that may have related aspects, and then 
here, here's my general rule to try to talk about everything that would be interesting uh, in the text itself. And then here's the harder one and nothing <laughs> that wouldn't be interesting. And so I decided to try to, you know, imagine that my readers would like the sort of thing I like and take it from there. Okay. And of course, as you were underscoring the fact that since you do teach, this is material that you've done more than once. It wasn't just composed behind a computer. It's You've had the give and take, and so it uh, makes it even more enjoyable when something's been uh, kind of tested that way, so to speak. So we do encourage people to check that out at the local bookstores, of course, online. Amazon and other online retailers is a great place for that. Well, let's step back a moment and consider some more general matters, and that is, how did you get into the writings of C.S. Lewis? You know, that class that we were talking about that I teach at Asbury, it's interesting because my students have all sorts of different ways of coming to Lewis. Uh, occasionally, I'll have someone who's never read anything by Lewis in the class, reading it for the first time as a college student. But more often, um, they would have read, well, some of them have read everything by Lewis already. Some read the Chronicles when they were in grade school. Some, For some students, these were the first books that were read to them uh, before they could read themselves. Interestingly enough, I was none of those. I grew up uh, in a community that really wasn't very literary. And so my older brother went off to college when I was in high school. And he came home at Thanksgiving and threw a book on my bed and said, here, you should read this. And the book he threw in my bed was The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I was about 16, sort of a sophomore in high school, and read this book and thought it was pretty strange and amazing and wonderful. And then, of course, as you would guess, I learned there were six others pretty much like it and other <laughs> books after that. So, yeah, I was I was neither a young person nor a college student. Uh, I was in high school and, you know, nobody around me knew who C.S. Lewis was. Now my students, they all know who C.S. Lewis was. Well, now, considering that Lewis is obviously has an impact in, in the world today, uh, you describe for yourself kind of why he uh, still has an impact. But I wonder in, in, in a broader sense, if you have some additional thoughts about why Lewis is, is impacting the uh, still today. Well, I mean, uh, part of the answer has to be no one can really say. I mean, what makes a genius a genius? Why, why are his books in, uh, so fresh? And, and let's be honest, The Language and Wardrobe came out in 1950, so that makes it over 60 years old. And i got to tell you, you pick up many books from the 50s, uh, and they're going to seem kind of dated. They're going to seem, you know, way out of out of time. And yet here's Lewis's and Tolkien's works, quite relevant, quite hearty, quite cherished by not just old folks, but young folks, people all over the world. So part of that answer is a little bit unanswerable. It's, it, it's, it's the amazing magic that they seem to have. Of course, Lewis was incredibly well read. That That's where we begin with. The other thing I think is that he offers this rare combination of reason and imagination. We haven't talked at all about the other side of, of Lewis, his apologetic works, but you know he was both the most clear, clearly rational writer of his century, I would say, but also had one of the most wonderful imaginative gifts. He started off as a poet, by the way, and he wasn't a particularly good one, but I also think that his those years of being, let's be honest, a, a failed poet, uh, gave him an ear for language like few prose writers have. So each of his words is really quite carefully chosen and seems to me to give him this gift of reading it as though it was written yesterday. Which brings up an interesting point in terms of uh, Lewis was able to take something that was essentially a failure. He didn't succeed in, in poetry, but that training, so to speak, as you were just saying, helped him 
in other aspects in life, and that should be encouragement for us as Christians that, you know, things that maybe didn't work out for so, uh, in some way, as Scripture talks about, all things can work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Yeah, I mean, the other great story uh, is he thought he wanted to be a philosopher, and he did a degree in classical philosophy, Greek and Romans, and um, at the end of the day, he couldn't get a philosophy job, so like, you know, students today, he stayed in school, got another degree, switched over to English, you know, because this thing that he probably thought was one of the worst things that could have happened, he didn't get a philosophy job, he switches over to English, and without that, he probably would not have written the books that he ended up writing. Exactly. Well, now, uh, we, uh, of course, uh, for those who maybe are just tuning in or tuning in and out to, and listening to this podcast, we're talking with uh, Devin Brown. We're closing up, actually, now. We've been talking originally about uh, his book coming out in October 2012, The Christian World of the Hobbit. And this uh, single podcast does an overview, just really scratching barely the surface. Devin's agreed to do a, a short series. Uh, we're going to look at uh, each chapter. But, of course, if you're listening to this and the book is already out, we encourage you to go ahead and get the book. But know if you're kind of on the edge and not sure that there's some more details that will be shared in this forthcoming series. But to, to wrap up, uh, what, what final thoughts uh, regarding your book, The Christian World of the Hobbit, that might uh, either just summarize overall or uh, to help encourage people to uh, get your book? Well, besides the, the five chapters that we discussed earlier, I also, as you would guess, go into a little bit of Tolkien's faith life. Um, again, a topic which is often ignored in, in, in works. I mean, his own story, just like Lewis's story, the story of his faith journey, uh, of his own life, death of his father when he was just a child, death of his mother uh, a little bit later in his childhood, how he was raised. That I also include that because, of course, that's the springboard from which we, we, I sort of go to the question, well, here was Tolkien's faith. Now let's look on how it impacted his fiction. So it also gives that look at his faith life. Well, again, we encourage people to check out Devin Brown's book, The Christian World of the Hobbit, available online retailers and hopefully in the local your local bookstore as well. Devin, thanks for uh, joining me here with All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast, available through EssentialCSLewis.com. Thank you.